This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. We can trace the issue back to 1960. Senator John F. Kennedy was running for the office of president of the United States. He insisted that he was not a Catholic candidate, but rather a candidate who happened to be Catholic. He assured Americans in a very strategic speech given in 1960 that if he were elected president, as he was, his Catholicism would have no determinative impact on his decision-making, his understanding of policy, foreign and domestic, and his outlook on the world. Now, many people have seen that as a great secular advance for the country. But others have to step back and wonder, how is it that any individual can separate his own thinking such that a faith, if sincerely held, can have so little impact in public life? That's today's issue for Thinking in Public. Damon Linker is a contributing editor of the New Republic and senior writing fellow at the Center for Critical Writing at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the author of books including The Theocons, Secular America Under Siege, and his new book, The Religious Test, Why We Must Question the Beliefs of Our Leaders. Damon Linker, welcome to Thinking in Public. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, well, it's going to be a fun conversation because... When I read your book and actually knew about the material coming out in anticipation of the book, I knew this is a conversation I wanted to have. Uh, we will agree on at least one thing, and uh, both of us are in print writing about this, and that is that the approach taken by former President John F. Kennedy when he was a candidate in 1960, when he spoke to the issue of his own religious beliefs and his, his role as uh, president as he was anticipating that role, he presented a speech in which he said that the secret to his approach was going to be that the fact that he was Catholic basically was going to make no difference in the way that he governed. Now, you're arguing in your book, The Religious Test, that what happened there, or at least what happened in terms of the cultural uh, understanding of that speech, is that people had come to the conclusion that a person's religious beliefs really are off topic when it comes to, to their political role. Yes, that's right. Uh, in that speech, he uh, Kennedy actually did two uh, things that are kind of at odds with each other. Uh, on the one hand, he uh, responded to criticism of his uh, Catholic beliefs uh, by saying, in effect, that it was illegitimate to raise questions about those beliefs, that, that it was uh, un-American, that religious freedom and the Constitution's ban on there being religious tests for high office meant that it was illegitimate to raise these questions. But at the same time, he answered the questions that people were raising uh, in the way that you stated, where he said that, in effect, uh, his Catholic beliefs uh, would not have any influence on his, his uh, thinking or actions as president. Uh, and in my book, what I'm trying to do is to push back uh, against the first uh, of those claims that basically says that it's illegitimate to raise questions about religious beliefs in our public life uh, because, uh, well, first of all, I think it's it's wrong, and I'll explain why a, a bit later, I'm sure. But, I mean, it really is amazing how much influence Kennedy had on uh, especially journalistic culture. Journalists pretty much agreed with him after that speech and stopped uh, posing those kinds of questions about theology and, and religious convictions of candidates. Well, you know, putting it in its historical perspective, back in the 1960 campaign, uh, I guess it would make sense that Kennedy would make this kind of argument. Uh, as a conservative evangelical, though, I look at it 
and have to come to the conclusion that these beliefs cannot be very deeply held if indeed they are not a part of the decision-making and worldview and uh, even the intuitions of an individual who would uh, who identify with that faith. Uh, you're coming from a different direction, but you're really arguing that what is needed now is some kind of new religious test, thus the title of your book. Yes, I am, uh, and I want to make clear to your listeners that I don't mean uh, to be saying that I oppose Article 6 of the Constitution, which, as Kennedy says, uh, does uh, prohibit any kind of legal test. So we, it, is, uh, it is against the Constitution, and it is un-American to say that a member of a certain church uh, shouldn't be allowed to, to hold high office, uh, and also it would be against the Constitution and un-American to say that one must belong to a certain church in order to hold high office. My religious test uh, that I advocate in the book is an informal test that we as citizens and, and journalists, as those who get cl- uh, in closest proximity to candidates to ask questions, it's a test that these groups would bring to our politics and and really uh and really push difficult challenging questions about religious beliefs but uh, of politicians but only and this is important only where it, it deals with a matter that could have a kind of uh public implication so i i'm not saying you know take take the member of um a religious group that uh, isn't in the majority, a kind of more obscure sect, and and say that we're going to ridicule the person's beliefs. That's not at all what I have in mind. It's simply to think through uh, areas where political the political implications of religious convictions uh, might be troubling or problematic, and put it uh, put it on the table for public discussion. Well, clearly, there's something in the contemporary American context that led you to believe that this book and this argument is now necessary. So. Without putting words in your mouth, let me just ask you, uh, why this book right now? What's going on in our political culture that led you to believe that uh, that this kind of argument is necessary right now? Well, I think that uh, the rise of uh, religious conservatives in our politics um, is actually poses uh, interesting and, and uh, I think, somewhat troubling questions for our politics. Um, it's not that the problem isn't, in my view, that there are religious conservatives. You could describe yourself as a conservative evangelical. And the fact that people believe those things uh, isn't a problem at all. Our political system is supposed to provide for, and in some ways, by, by privatizing religion, it leads it to thrive and spread uh, in the private sphere of our lives, and that's all to the good. Um, the problem arises, in my view, when religious conservatives seek to put uh they, they seek to encourage candidates for office to put their religious faith at the core of their identity and at the center of their policy program and that would be fine if uh the whole country or almost the entire country were members of that politician's particular religion. But the fact is that we're a very diverse, pluralistic society. We have many differences about these things. Our, I would say, and I argue in the book, that our political system was built on the assumption that human beings will disagree about the highest aims of life. That, I think, is what Jefferson had in mind when he talked about having a a country dedicated to the pursuit of happiness. Note that the content of happiness is not specified. That's up to individuals and groups to decide for themselves. And so 
when a politician comes in and says, my religious faith is, is the core of what I stand for, and it is going to determine what I advocate and what I do in high office, that inevitably ends up uh, being, I would say, uh, uh, the part of a highly complicated, diverse society trying to impose its view on the society as a whole. And so it's best when our politics is conducted uh, in a position, from a position, I would say, of theological neutrality, uh, not against religion, but not uh, actively in favor of any particular religion. Well, one of the things that intrigues me about your argument is, is your reading of evangelicals in terms of political ambition and uh, in terms of uh, what, what I guess might be styled a political theory of, uh, of engagement here. You're bold to say that you think that the evangelical approach is, is dangerous. In some areas, I think that, uh, you know, I'm following the lead in one of my chapters very closely of Mark Knoll, the you know, well-known evangelical historian who wrote a book uh, about uh, about anti-intellectualism among evangelicals. And when it comes to that, I do believe that that you... You know, again, speaking abstractly, this is certainly not true, say, of Noel himself and of many of individual evangelicals that I've met and know, and I'm sure it's not true of you, but it is the case that evangelical culture does tend to, uh, to lean in the direction of a more, uh, emotional response to faith and to be very suspicious of, uh, curiosity, skepticism, intellectual endeavor for its own sake. And that, I think, can, uh, can be troublesome in, in a, in a modern society where our problems are very complicated and require, uh, some expert knowledge, uh, in order to solve. Um, and, uh, it, it can lead to a kind of, um, again, a kind of anti-intellectual style of engagement with public problems that I don't think is very healthy for the country. Um, that's the primary problem. And I also talk in another chapter about evangelical homeschoolers, and um, they too, I kind of, uh, you know, I, I'm critical of those evangelical homeschoolers not who seek to just raise their children as they wish, but who see that as a kind of prelude to kind of taking the country back in the name of their faith. And that is by no means, that is not all evangelical homeschoolers, uh, but it is a kind of a, a loud faction that uh, gets a lot of press. In reading your first book, uh, or, or the book that preceded this, Theocons, and then moving to the religious test, I, I see continuities, I also see some discontinuities. But you're really talking here about evangelicals, and, and as you're speaking to a largely evangelical audience, uh, you, you've spoken to how you think that that is dangerous. So with, without me construing this, uh, allowing you just to say what you want to say, what, what exactly would you have evangelicals to do? Well, I mean, it depends on, on levels as well. So at one level, uh, you know, if you're just an evangelical citizen and you don't hold office, um, I would simply encourage you, like I would encourage all American citizens to, to, uh, you know, have, have respect for science and allow science to its rightful place in unlocking the secrets of the natural world. It's, it's hard to do, uh, you know, Catholics, uh, is uh, kind of pride themselves on being able to do it. But really what I'm talking about is, uh, kind of allowing, uh, one's faith in the Bible to be combined with, again, a kind of allowance for human curiosity to try to understand the way the natural world works. 
and and you know how exactly one puts those two things together is very very tricky and it's hard and it means that to be a modern believer is to to live in a state of constant challenge uh to one's convictions and again it's hard but it, i believe that to be an honest uh open-minded believer is to realize that there's no other there's no other solution in the modern period for that um so that you know that's a lot of it if when you rise up to higher levels of office say you're running for president if you're mike huckabee for example uh who's uh, who's a pastor in the, in the southern uh, southern baptist uh church i mean i think that in that kind of a case then we might also raise questions about um beliefs about the end times the rapture whether they're you know what to what extent the candidate uh you know believes in uh god's providential guidance of america and and how specific it is not a general sense that yes God is watching out for us and will protect us. That's almost universal in American history and America today. But, I mean, a more specific thing about how, well, uh, uh, the return of Christ is imminent in the Middle East and, you know, whether Hezbollah hypothetically takes over Lebanon tomorrow and attacks northern Israel, is is that a sign that, you know, Jesus is going to return a week from Tuesday? Or, uh, or is there a little bit more... Um, kind of willingness to accept that we can't really know that you know maybe maybe Christ won't be returning for hundreds and hundreds of years and this is all just a kind of little sideshow to human history we just don't know because we're in the middle of it so uh I'm a big fan of Reinhold Niebuhr and I I quote him a lot in a chapter of the book on on providence and so I would want some kind of assurance on the part of an evangelical candidate for president that they have a kind of uh, uh, you could say a bit uh, of hesitation toward drawing too strong of a conclusion about what we can know about about providence. Yeah, to uh, to push back just a little on this, you you seem to have a very clear understanding in the book of the importance of religious convictions, and I appreciate that because uh, unlike many uh, writing from uh, the secular left, uh, you understand that these are very formative beliefs that are deeply and passionately held and that will work their way out. And in fact, even where you see it as dangerous, it's precisely because they will work their way out uh, right. into lifestyle, into worldview choices, uh, and in for that matter, to policy decisions. But let me just ask you, you know, when, when, you, when you talk about religious conviction in that way, do you accept the fact that Every single person has some worldview with some kind of commitments. Even even the most ardent secularist is operating out of a worldview, and that worldview is going to matter. Of course, of course. And I actually conclude uh, the main part of the book uh, with a chapter that's very critical of the New Atheists uh, for – in effect, being anti-religions or counter-religions uh, that have many of the same defects and dangers as many of the more fundamentalist religious views that they're so critical of. Um, I'm very critical of people like Richard Dawkins, Christopher right. Hitchens, Sam Harris. I mean, they... You know, Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, uh, has a chapter that begins where he just comes right out and says that to raise a child within a faith tradition is child abuse. And yet he's not honest enough to then let the other shoe drop and, and admit that, well, you know, we, we arrest people for child abuse. We take children away from parents who are being abused. So does he really intend that the state should be going in and taking the, ch the children of religious believers away from them? Of course not. He, he wouldn't say that explicitly, but he's playing with fire there. 
because the implication of his argument is precisely that that should happen. So that that's at least as as offensive and illiberal as uh, some of the religious views that I examine um, in the other chapters. Damon Linker is a fascinating writer. I knew this book was coming out, and I wanted to read it. I looked forward to it with anticipation because I knew already that he was going to confront the secular argument with uh, with its obvious pitfalls, that indeed you cannot separate religious conviction and public life so neatly as the secularists believe that it can be done, indeed insist that it can be done. At the same time, I also knew that Damon Linker was going to be arguing from a position that would suggest that at least some religious convictions have to be seen as awkward, even downright dangerous in the public square. I had a pretty good idea where he was going. And as the conversation we've just had makes very clear, he believes that the evangelical influence in the larger public square is perhaps dangerous because, well, evangelicals now expect that people, indeed those who are running for public office, well, let us know what the religious beliefs are and how it's going to matter. Well, it's the how it matters that Mr. Lincoln makes clear is his concern. Let's talk about how it matters when it comes to the most controversial issues. Indeed, right now, the moral issues over an issue such as homosexuality and same-sex marriage. In his book, The Religious Test, Why We Must Question the Beliefs of Our Leaders, Damon Linker argues that when it comes to the regulation of sexual morality by law, well, there needs to be a shift from a morality of ends to a morality of rights. And in what I think is a very honest assessment of the situation, he has a certain way of reading how we arrived at this particular moment. Mr. Lincoln, let me ask you this. Uh, you you speak here about the fact that insofar as uh, as a traditionalist morality is really uncontested by the larger culture, it's simply accepted. But we're now in a situation where that traditional sexual morality, the regulation of sexual morality, is not so much accepted by the larger culture, and thus we're in a real battle over this. Yes, that's right. Uh, and I want to be clear that when I say that we have to replace uh, a morality of ends by a morality of rights. I don't mean on the part of individuals and groups. I don't mean to say that you know, individual believers or individual citizens of any kind can't believe that there are human ends that are fixed and that we uh, should live our lives in order to to realize those ends. That's perfectly legitimate, and I expect almost everybody does that. What I'm talking about is the rule for how we live together as a society when we disagree about those ends. And I referenced earlier Thomas Jefferson's line about, uh, about the pursuit of happiness and the fact that the Declaration of Independence doesn't specify what the, what the end is, what the happiness consists in. And that's a very good expression of the point. Um, and I, I really do think that, uh, as I describe it in the book, that our form of government was created to help us to get along and live together in peace despite our differences about ends. And as you noted, my discussion of the, the so-called culture war and, and social conservatism uh, turns on this point, because as I see it, what, what has happened over the last 50 years in America is that 
um, what used to be an almost universal consensus about our ends as human beings in sexual matters, so that uh, all forms of sodomy, you know, all, all, all the, the litany of things, uh, certain activities, whether between people of the same sex, different gender, uh, whether they're married or not, pretty much everyone believed that traditional sexual morality was the right way to go. The problem is that and I should add that when that was the case, when that consensus held, the law backed, backed people up on that. So most of these activities were illegal and would be prosecuted if they were found out by the state. The fact is that since the, around the mid-1960s, this consensus has broken down to the point where most polls show that something like 30, maybe 35% of Americans uphold traditionalist sexual morality, and the rest of the country doesn't. They they think that there's not enough, uh, and they just don't affirm, affirm that these views are true. And when that happens, in a liberal, free society like ours, the state tends to get very skittish about enforcing universal rules and steps back and says, hey, we can't inform, we can't use the law to enforce the views of a part on the whole. And that is, in effect, what I think uh, religious traditionalists and the religious right is trying to do. They have a kind of nostalgia for a consensus about these things that no longer exists and, it frankly, isn't going to come back. And so my view is it's perfectly legitimate to be a traditionalist. Um, I would say, you know, uh, what you should be doing is knocking on doors and proselytizing and trying to convert people back to sexual traditionalism. Uh, if that were to happen, then we could have the old strictures back, but uh, I, I don't think it's very likely, and it shouldn't be sought through politics. Well, I've often argued as a conservative that the culture determines the politics rather than the politics determining the culture, if we're going to look at it in that yeah, sense. That's, yeah, that's pretty much the same point. Uh, I also appreciate your honesty where you say here that a traditionalist morality of ends with regard to sex is once assumed by nearly all Americans. That's something that uh, that many people on the left simply will not even accept or admit unless they just put it in kind of a progressivist understanding of history that it's uh, we, we have an evolutionary morality. But it seems to me there's one part of your argument that uh, that just can't be pressed to its to its ultimate end. No pun intended. So let me ask okay. you this. When you yeah. talk about a morality of rights, if indeed we were to take your advice and we surrender a morality of ends, which is, uh, to, to put it in another language, uh, a, a, a morality that is based upon clear understandings of the purposes for which uh, human sexuality were given and the right and appropriate means whereby it should be regulated, if we forfeit that entirely and, and we enter into a cultural negotiation based upon this morality of rights – is there any limit whatsoever to, to, to where that goes? I, I, you know, we're told that that's an illegitimate question, but it's an unavoidable question, it seems to me. Well, I, I, I don't flinch from the question, and I admit that it, it leads to potentially uh, troubling directions. Uh, I guess I would say, um, you know, I mean, choose your, choose your outlandish thing. You know, what should we be uh, hypothetically? So, so even say something that isn't as outlandish as some other things. So say uh, polygamy. All right. I mean, that's often what people say in, when talking about the slippery slope. So if we allow same-sex marriage, next thing you know, we'll have legal polygamy. Um, in my scheme in the book, um, I would say, I mean, following through on it, I would have to admit that if significant numbers of Americans began to clamor for the right to polygamy, then that would have to be permitted. Yeah. Uh, my, my 
inclination is that that isn't going to happen because uh, I, I just don't. I, unlike, uh, you know, again, we could debate this too, but unlike homosexuality, I don't believe anyone is born by nature being polygamous in orientation. It's not analogous in that way. And uh, frankly, I don't think polygamy would be very popular. Um, uh, and then we get to polyamory, and then, you know, if you're Rick Santorum, next thing you talk about bestiality. I mean, do we really think that there's going to be a, a, a significant faction of Americans who are going to clamor to, you know, marry their dog? I, 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 I would agree that if we're talking about a morality of rights, as I talk about it, there is no absolute way to preclude that because we're talking about a democracy we're talking about a free society and if it so happened that america evolved in a direction where there was a large number of people saying yes we want uh interspecies marriage um then uh, it's not clear exactly how we as a society would be able to say no to that my gut if you will tells me that that's not going to happen because there again, I don't think anyone is born uh, wanting that, needing that, and I don't think it would be very popular ever. Yeah, well, you know, I I think as a as a conservative, I would also accept the fact that uh, that cultural change is uh, is unpredictable, and uh, and and as a Christian, I have to say that I think there is a, there is still uh, some convicting power to uh, the, to this traditional biblical sexual morality that has some break upon the culture. But I think just taking the logical structure of this morality of rights, I, I think it's important to recognize this is basically just a communitarian ethic. Wherever the community goes, that's where the ethic goes. And uh, and I appreciate your honesty in affirming that. I want to turn yeah, to, to another. An extent, yeah, yeah, I do have again a kind of faith that uh, that in addition to a kind of holdover of biblical morality, as you described, that there is something like human nature out there that gives us some kind of orientation that would keep uh, keep us from developing too far down that horrific slippery slope that we're talking about. But you know, I, I might be wrong. I'm also just trying to understand, and I, I you know, when you make a, 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 when you publish a book and uh, you put it forth for public argument, uh, public argument's what you should have. And so mm-hmm. I'm enjoying the conversation. When, when I look at, uh, at one of the arguments you make on the other side of, uh, of, of this, uh, of this argument, once a society has adopted your plan, uh, you accept there are going to be some continuing issues, and one of them is going to be how you protect the rights of religious traditionalists or, or religious mm-hmm. conservatives. And so, to give you credit, you say that uh, to read from your book, uh, they must go further, taking concrete legal steps to guarantee that the religious freedoms of traditionalists will be recognized and protected in a society that also recognizes and protects the political rights of homosexuals. You say this is the right thing to do, and not only because liberalism stands or falls uh, on its willingness to defend freedom, uh, even the freedom of those who devote themselves to moralities and ultimate ends that conflict with liberal ideals and aspirations, it's the right thing to do, because traditionalist beliefs really will be subjected to increasing unprecedented legal pressure as homosexuals move, homosexuality moves deeper and deeper into the mainstream of American life. Now, you know, I'm absolutely convinced that what you're arguing there is correct. And I think we already see some of the ways this is headed. You know, I'll, I'll just tell you right up front, I don't think there is any adequate legal protection. And uh, in a recent symposium that was held on the issue, Kai Feldblum, arguing from the other side, said, I can see where etiquette might uh, insinuate that we should try to put these protections in place, but constitutionally, I don't see how we pull that off. 
Well, um, we'll see. I mean, I know that when, for instance, Connecticut passed its uh, same-sex marriage law, it in the bill were certain provisions designed to 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 you know, that explicitly state that this should not be construed to imply that traditionalist believers must affirm. Uh, must affirm this and attempting to, you know, to, to kind of erect a wall around them in addition to the First Amendment, which one would think would be good enough. And what it really depends on, I mean, we just don't know yet. I mean, clearly there are some on the left who basically would like to use the state to stamp out uh, sexual traditionalism because they see it as morally equivalent to uh, belief in slavery and racism and so forth. And my view, as I state in the book, is is very much that this is wrong. This is a very strong misreading. Uh, Racism and slavery are by no means anywhere near as essential to biblical teaching as sexual uh, morals is. And so to to try to wipe that out is to be pretty flagrantly anti-religious. And we do have a First Amendment in this country that is supposed to protect religious uh, religious practice, free exercise. And I, I I'm not quite as pessimistic as some on on the right. I know Rod Dreher is a writer who I've debated about this. Uh, I was at a debate the other day with Ross Douthat, who's a, a conservative columnist for the New York Times. He's he's nervous about this. Many on the right are very nervous, and I understand why, because there are people on the other side who want to have this kind of uh, imperialistic. Um, comprehensive ideological crusade on behalf of uh, of liberalism to stamp out anything but secularism, and, but that that is itself, I would say, a form of illiberalism and must be resisted. So when when it comes to that, I'm then with the conservatives. Well, let me ask you to adjudicate this then, because the, the, this is where the water hits the wheel. Because uh, if you're talking about the right of a church, for instance, uh, to have the right not to perform a same-sex marriage, I'm, I'm pretty confident that the courts and the legislatures will, will be required, anything else, by the Constitution to, to acknowledge that. But what about a case like uh, the Catholic Charities of Massachusetts that for uh, decades have been, uh, had, have been involved in the adoption uh, uh, process and uh, had helped to place literally thousands of children in homes, but because it would not accept the reality of, uh, of same-sex marriage, it basically had to get out of business. It had to forfeit uh, its, uh, its historic adoption ministry. You know, that, that's where I have to say the, the liberal side just absolutely took a take-no-prisoners approach. And, and that's not hypothetical. That's actual. I know it is. And I, I, I kind of wish the, 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 uh, the Catholic Charities had fought it further up all the way to the Supreme Court, because what they did, in effect, was kind of preemptively give up and assume they would lose. Um, I assume other organizations will will fight longer and let it go all the way to the top, because I do think that this has to be adjudicated. We have to decide this. I mean, I'm not in favor of that. I think the Catholic charity should be allowed to do what it's been doing. It's a private organization, the core of whose mission is to to follow through on its its social vision of human life, and it should be permitted to uh, to facilitate adoptions according to those standards. Um, it's a again, it's a private organization, and it's a religious one. And in our society, in our legal system, religious private organizations are supposed to have extra special protections. And what I'm advocating in the book is even more on top of that, namely any time a law in favor of same-sex marriage is passed, it should be accompanied by 
uh, amendments or clauses within the law that explicitly state this is not designed to imply that conservative traditionalist organizations have to conform to the moral vision of the law. Uh, but again, you know, whether, you know, Rod Dreher, I don't know if we actually in public have, have stayed, I, I don't know if we've ever made it an official bet, but uh, we, we have a kind of informal bet that he bets that my, that my position is just going to lose, that, you know, I, I'm being unrealistic, utopian, and believing that the liberal state can be neutral on this. Um, you know, again, I hope, I'm, I hope I'm right, and I hope he's wrong. Well, in that sense, I hope you're right, but uh, I think I'm with Rod thinking that uh, it, it doesn't look likely. Now, we are all minds in motion in ways that we recognize and ways that we do not, do not recognize. I, I first came across your name because I'm, a, I'm a, one of the original subscribers to First Things, mm-hmm. uh, an intellectual journal that I've received uh, continuously since its first publication. You know, t- can you trace for me just a moment kind of your mind in motion? How did you get from point A to point B, say, over the last decade or so? Yeah, well, it's a complicated story. I mean, I guess the the simple story, the simple version of it is that um, I, I simply I simply believe I, I'm very much a kind of um, I, I'm I'm not in favor of uh, intensifying America's tendency to uh, think of itself in theological terms. I guess you could say, and I, I was. I was troubled by what I saw going on in in the United States in the years following 9/11 and the build up to the Iraq war and then the aftermath of the Iraq war which set me on a path of conflict with my boss Richard John Newhouse who was the editor of the magazine. Uh there were other issues of dispute between us but the real flashpoint was uh the Bush administration and its its foreign policy and especially the Iraq war. Um whereas I would have preferred the magazine to uh, adopt a kind of, again, Niborian, uh, position of kind of, uh, realism about foreign policy, skepticism about America, uh, and its role in the world. Not negative about America's role in the world, but kind of cautious, very cautious about overreacting, thinking, us thinking a little bit too unthinkingly well of ourselves. Uh, I would have liked to publish pieces like that to basically try to pull the Bush administration a little bit back from its aggressive response a little bit, temper it a little bit. Uh, Father Newhouse didn't agree at all, and we ran a series of articles by George Weigel and other people who uh, very much were in favor of ever more American boosterism, which I thought was in considerable uh, conflict with uh, a genuine Christian response to what was going on. But so, d- just to, to press this just a little bit further, on, on the big moral issues, which are so much a part of this book, on those issues, it, do you perceive a, a major shift in your own thinking over this time? Well, uh, not a major shift, but a bit. I mean, I um, what what ended up happening as a result of, of the foreign policy dispute is that I reevaluated a bunch of things, and among them was the the entire kind of first things uh, Richard John Newhouse project of trying to bring uh, religious morality into public on all of the on a series of issues. So, you know, personally. You know, if there's any issue that's associated with first things in Newhouse, it's abortion, being pro-life. And I have, uh, you know, my own view on this. You know, I am personally opposed to abortion. I think it's it's a moral crime of a pretty significant one. But 
uh, I'm I'm far more skittish about uh, about whether it's wise to seek uh, a kind of ban on abortion in a society where it simply is not. Uh, again, it's not a matter. It's a matter of people in good faith and upstanding morals can disagree about the moral status of. Uh, the fetus. I don't believe that we can disagree about whether the fetus is a human being. That, I think, is... Uh, so, you know, when, when people on the other side say, oh, you know, this is just kind of uh, a weird kind of traditionalist um, logic chopping, you know, it's all about when uh, when the fetus becomes alive. The fetus is alive from the moment of, of conception, pretty much. and And that's just a fact. But the, the moral status of this fetus, I think there are all kinds of moral intuitions that many people have that tell them that, well, it's something in between, and given that it's a life inside another person, uh, then this is a complicated area where, uh, you know, absolute strictures probably aren't the wisest thing. So I guess I've moved a bit in the left direction on, on that and related issues. We are indeed minds in motion. That's why we need to have conversations such as these in order not only to hear another speak, but to listen to ourselves speak, to come to terms with our own mind. When it comes to the argument made by Damon Linker, I think many evangelicals are going to recognize here is what we're actually going to be facing. Here in this argument made in this book is something that we're going to have to deal with for decades to come. That's what makes this conversation, I think, so strategic and so important. Christians have better understand that we cannot separate our minds into secular and religious spheres. There's no way that we as Christians can say, well, my Christian conviction has an impact on this part of my life, but in no other. So we need to come with honesty to, to say to ourselves and to others that worldviews really do matter, that every single individual operates out of a worldview, certain plausibility structures, certain convictions of thought that shape everything he or she is and every thought that she or he has and every decision that we make. Now, that being said, the question comes back in the context of an orderly democratic process. How do we adjudicate where we have differences of worldview, not just differences of policy, not just differences of political choice and differences of legislation and judicial outcome, but where we have differences at a far more basic level? Now, one of the achievements of Damon Linker's book and his approach is that he actually dignifies that question. He, he does acknowledge that worldview matters. In his own language and in his own way, he recognizes that there is no way we can follow the kind of advice and model that was given to us by then-Senator Kennedy when he suggested that, uh, well, a political candidate can simply check his or her religious convictions at the door. If so, they are not deeply and passionately held. If not, there ought to be an honest examination of exactly how these convictions would inform public life, political leadership, and the responsibilities of office. Now, Mr. Linker was bold to tell us that he thinks that we are downright dangerous. That is, evangelical Christians who, over the last several decades, have become newly energized and active in the public square. He sees this because, as he understands it, conservative Christians are operating out of a certain kind of absolutist worldview that is simply not accepted, indeed isn't considered acceptable, by the larger culture. Well, we can all do the math, looking at surveys and polls. There is no question that, in terms of a clear policy, worldview, uh, philosophical understanding on the questions of uh, the most current issues of the day, the most controversial issues of the day, evangelicals tend to come at these questions with a very different framework than do others. 
Now, one of the things that we insist upon as we enter in the public square is that those frameworks actually matter. And one of my frustrations, as is shared by many others, is that when we're in conversation with people on the more secularist side, they often think that it is we who have a worldview and that they do not have one. Well, I want to appreciate the fact that Damon Linker recognizes that we all come to this uh, political equation. We all come to the public square with a certain worldview. But, you know, I understand why he sees evangelicals as dangerous. It's for virtually the same reason that I see the secularist as dangerous. And it comes down to where he arrives at, I think, the most interesting part of his book. And that has to do with the regulation of sexual behavior. Because that is where the law and our personal and private lives come into an absolutely unavoidable collision and intersection. How are we going to regulate these things? There will be some law related to marriage. There will be some social regulation or legal regulation when it comes to sexual behavior. And we've arrived at this point in the 21st century in the American experiment that that is where the sparks most hotly fly. And we can understand why. That intersection is a very dangerous intersection. Now, what would Mr. Linker have us to do? He would have us to recognize that there has been a worldview evolution on the part of the American people. In honesty, he accepts that there once was a time when virtually everybody held to a traditionalist understanding of sexual morality. We would call that an objective understanding of sexual morality, an understanding that there is a given sexual morality. We understand it as a God-given sexual morality to which we are all obligated. Now, Mr. Linker says the reality is that the culture at large has moved far beyond that. We're simply not where we once were. That, that sexual morality is given way to a communitarian, consensual morality that is based on uh, rights. He says it's the ex- exchange of a morality of ends, that is the end for which a thing was given or created, and uh, now the embrace of a morality of rights, in which rights become the basic dynamic of decision-making, and we adjudicate matters, discuss and debate matters, on the parts of how we respect each other's rights. Now, the most interesting part of the conversation, at least to me, was where we pressed the conversation in discussing the limitations of a morality of rights. And I thought, with breathtaking honesty, Mr. Linker accepted and acknowledged that in a morality of rights, there are absolutely no absolutes. So what Mr. Linker said is that he has tremendous confidence, or he said at least some confidence, that we are not evolving and, uh, and moving morally in the direction of the embrace of virtually everything, what one Supreme Court justice called the parade of the horribles, but rather we are evolving more slowly with a certain respect, a certain respect for human nature that would limit certain issues. Now, he also spoke of a morality that was based upon certain understandings of, of for instance, how homosexuality happens. But without entering into that debate on its own terms, in reality we really do see the stark alternatives that are before us. And, of course, when it comes to religious liberty, again, a good deal of honesty on the part of Mr. Linker, I do think he is far too optimistic. He's bold to call for an adequate legislative and judicial understanding of the necessity of protecting the liberty rights of those who are traditionalist Christians and uh, and, and who hold to other traditionalist positions in terms of a belief of the morality of, uh, of marriage and the immorality of homosexuality. But, as I mentioned to him in throwing out the case of the Massachusetts Catholic Charities that had to give up uh, the entire business of adoption simply because they could no longer do so, their rights were no longer respected. Well, that's where I think the public space is going to close up very fast. I think what we're going to see with the normalization of same-sex marriage 
is that there will be no adequate way to recognize what should be the respected rights of Christian churches, of, of Christian individuals as citizens, and of Christian institutions. I think we're going to find ourselves, along with uh, other religious groups who would hold to a traditionalist sexual morality, ostracized in the larger culture, marginalized legally, and I think we're going to see a virtual complete revolution. We're going to see a moral revolution such that what was once considered immoral is now considered normal, and what was once accepted as morally normative is now marginalized. Damien Linker's book, The Religious Test, is one of those books that is likely to spark a good deal of conversation, and for good reason. I think it's going to be equally interesting and controversial on the left as on the right. What we have here is a very honest argument that is put forth for public debate, and I certainly hope that that public debate happens. The great achievement of his book is the honesty of the fact that we cannot separate religious conviction and public life. I think his, his target in terms of conservative evangelicals is understandable because you have to ask the question, in terms of the democratic experiment, if you're coming from a secular perspective, if you're coming from the viewpoint that any understanding of objective morality that is to be legislated is something to be avoided, then you're going to see the energy and uh, the assumptions of evangelical Christians in the public square as something that you need to marginalize or attenuate. Well, it will be interesting to see where this goes, but I do know this. What you see in this book is a sign of things to come. Thanks for listening to Thinking in Public. For more information, go to my website at albertmoller.com. For information about the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information about Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. You'll also want to know about my daily podcast, Monday through Friday, of The Briefing. It's available at iTunes and also through albertmoller.com. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.